Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Previously on Hello, John Doe. I think everybody's got an origin, and I would just like to know, you know, where I began. I'm not at all sad or disappointed in how I grew up, but I just, I don't know. It's just, it is a big deal to me. You want a relationship with her at all? I mean, would you like to have that? I don't know. Maybe I could answer that question better once I find out why she gave me up. That makes sense. So I was in Charlotte, and that's why I met Franklin Floyd. But I knew him as Brandon Williams. I loved the fact that he was going to help me get my kids back and take me away from the situation. Love him? No. He's creepy. He was always creepy. At 25 years old, Sandy spent a month in a Dallas jail. She'd written a bad check trying to get diapers. The days were long and boring, and she wasn't allowed outside. It scared me to a point that that I didn't ever want to do anything illegal again as long as I lived. It was 1975. By then, she was a mother of four, and she was afraid of her husband. But still, when she got out of jail, she wasn't prepared for what happened in her absence. While I was in jail, he picked the kids up, and he took Allison and Amy to an orphanage and left them at the orphanage. Her husband, Franklin Floyd, had left town, and he had forced Suzanne, Sandy's oldest daughter, to leave with him. And that's when he took her, and that was the last time that she was seen. That's Amy Winkles, Sandy's third oldest daughter. She was one of the girls Floyd left in an orphanage. When Sandy realized what Floyd had done, she went first to the Dallas police station. She told him her husband had taken Susie, 
That's what she called her, Susie. And I kept screaming, she's not his child. He's not her father. And finally they escorted me out of the police station. They didn't think there was anything wrong with Floyd taking off with his six-year-old stepdaughter. Laws were looser before the Parental Kidnapping Prevention Act of 1980, and they varied state by state. So Sandy went to FBI headquarters in Dallas. They didn't help either. She was in such a state, desperate and heartsick, that she went to places around town, like the grocery store, to see if anyone had seen Floyd. When I couldn't find him, I packed... This is really stupid, but I packed everything in a duffel bag, all of the girls' stuff in a duffel bag, and started... Because somebody said he went to Michigan. Hitchhiking sounds terrible, but back then, it wasn't like that. I went to a truck stop, and a truck driver said, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I I must have been really freaky looking because I wasn't worried about combing my hair. I was just, I was going to find her. I had to find her. One truck driver gave me to another truck driver to another truck. There was no, nobody ever said anything about sex. Nobody ever said anything about money. They put the girls in the beds in the back of the truck, made sure everybody ate, took me where I wanted to go, said that there anything we can do to help you. But there was only so much that they, or Sandy, could do. Here's Sandy's youngest, Dorothy, who hadn't been born when all this was going on. She's 42, a motorcycling enthusiast with three kids of her own. You know, they didn't have the missing children's yet. They didn't have none of that stuff. When she was talking with the police as she was going through the different states and everything, they were telling her that there was nothing that they can do because she was married to him. Legally, he had the right to take them at that time. I called the FBI about it. They couldn't comment on Susie's case in particular or what laws should have protected her, but they told me something incredible. They never found a missing persons report for Susie. Authorities in North Carolina didn't take one which is why Susie was never in any databases like NamUs. This was 1975. It wasn't a crime to take your stepchild away from their biological parent. It wasn't kidnapping. But Sandy's instincts told her something was really wrong. So she went to the Salvation Army, which has a program that reconnects lost relatives. I mean, when I went to the Salvation Army and told them, what they said, you know, you were married to him. There's nothing we can do to help. And they looked at me like, you're a woman, just get on with the program. And Sandy said her own flesh and blood barely registered that their granddaughter was missing. The Tulsa police called my mom and dad. And my mom and dad said, oh, well, let her do what she wants to do. And that was the end of that. Her parents wouldn't come to Oklahoma and help her search. Sandy looked everywhere she could think of, but never saw her missing husband or her missing daughter, Susie. Never saw him, never saw them. Didn't know anything about what was going on. Eventually, Sandy had to face what she didn't want to face. That without the help of authorities, she had an uphill battle ahead of her. She couldn't keep hitchhiking forever. She had to settle down and make a home for the children she still had. That's how it came to be that two of Sandy's girls grew up with her in Virginia, but Steve and Susie didn't. Sandy told me some of the story on the phone. What did you think could have been happening to her? What was your imagination like? What is he doing with this child? No, no. At that point, I didn't think he was doing anything like that at all. And I think now that I look back on it, that was really naive on my part. Because to him, she was a princess. She could do nothing wrong. If she, 
hit Allison or hit Amy, it was Allison or Amy's fault. It was never her fault. You know, she never did anything wrong. Sandy knew him as Brandon Williams, but his real name was Franklin Floyd. By this point, he had been terrible to her. She knew he had a temper, but couldn't imagine he'd hurt Susie. He just wanted her, is what I thought. I never thought it would be the nightmare it was. My name is Todd Matthews, and this is Hello John Doe, a sleuth, a family, and a serial killer. The story of a family torn apart by tragedy, and my quest to bring them back together. Chapter 4. The Honda Since I started digging into Steve's life, I learned that he was living with his adoptive parents in North Carolina, not that far from where Sandy gave birth to him. But Sandy didn't know that. Because, as it turns out, she wasn't working with the same clues I had. And you didn't know to find Mary? No. Did not know. That's because Sandy's recollection of the adoption is pretty different than Mary's. Mary said she got Steve from a trailer park in 1974, just six weeks after he was born. The way Sandy remembered it, she had six months with Steve before Floyd started talking about moving. They were going to pile into his Honda and head to St. Louis. And he said, we don't have room for everybody in the car. And we drove one night to Mary's house and and took Steve and left him there. And I cried the whole way back. And he said, we'll go back and get him. We'll go back and get him. We'll go back and get him. Here's what's weird. Mary and Sandy's story seem to diverge at every turn. But in the Venn diagram of Mary's memory and Sandy's, the tiny car was the overlap. Sandy said the car was too small to bring everyone, even an infant. And Mary remembered a tiny car, too. It had two doors and a small engine in front. When Sandy was handing Steve over to her in the trailer park, Mary said she noticed Floyd in the front seat and three little ones in the back. I'll admit this tripped me up a bit. It made Sandy's story feel more true. Either way, Sandy said she left Steve because she thought they would come back and get him. Their separation was only temporary. He said they were George and Mary Washington is what he told me their names were. And of course, I was still thinking, I know, I was still not thinking real clearly. How did you feel when you just dropped him off? Oh, I was upset. Very upset. But I remember giving him to Mary. I remember handing him to Mary and saying, Mommy will be back to get you. Just give Mommy a chance to get where she's going and Mommy will come back and get you. And kissing him. And they continued on their trip in the Honda that apparently didn't have room for four kids. When we lived in St. Louis, we still had the Honda. And I thought, you know, we're going this weekend to get Steve. We're going this weekend. No, 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 no. And then finally he said, you'll never get him back. Even when she did look, after she went to jail, she couldn't find Steve. And I couldn't find Mary and George Washington anywhere in North Carolina, in that area. Now, it's possible Mary Washington is Mary Patterson. Floyd used a ton of aliases. Maybe he changed Mary's last name to make her untraceable. Still, the timing doesn't line up. But I don't know how he knew Mary. That's what I don't understand. 
Maybe from the hospital. He wasn't there when I had Steve. I didn't even know him when I had Steve. I met him after I had Steve. My producer Kate and I sat there with Sandy, parsing through the past, trying to figure out how to square Sandy's regulations with Mary's. Sometimes it was frustrating. I felt like I'd shown up at Sandy's with a clear mission to learn as much about Steve's adoption as I could and bring those morsels of information back to him. But there were some inconsistencies. Mary says Steve was adopted after six weeks. Sandy says six months. And the second thing, they both remember the handoff happening in a trailer park. But Mary thinks it's one in North Carolina. And Sandy remembers driving out of state to give Steve up. I don't know what I could have done. I I really don't know what I could have done, and I tried everything I could do, but it, it still wasn't enough. And I could understand from his point of view, feeling like, why didn't you try harder? Yeah. Why, why didn't you, you do more? This was 1975, around the time the tent girl went missing, and my father-in-law, Wilbur, found her in Kentucky. Finding missing children was even harder than it is today. We used to say at NamUs that children leave fewer clues behind. They leave smaller footprints. It was hard. It was hard. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. No. It's exactly how he felt. He doesn't understand why, because he felt like you knew where he was, but you oh, didn't. Oh, no. Oh, I wish I had known where he was. What would you say to Steve if you could talk to him right now? I, I still love him. I still see this little baby, and I'm, I'm so sorry about what I let be done. But on the other hand, what was done was a blessing because he wasn't a part of all this. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Sandy didn't know it at the time. But in giving Steve away, she shielded him from a serial killer. She possibly saved his life. Later on, Sandy shared some of Steve's Facebook messages with us. He'd sent them back in 2021. When I read them, my heart just sank. He wrote, why did you leave me? You said there was an excuse. Was it me? Was I not good enough? I am curious. Yet in her telling, Sandy didn't intend to give Steve up permanently. And she did look for him in the immediate aftermath. But so many things stood in her way, including not knowing Mary's real last name. After I got home from my trip to see Sandy, my mind kept racing. I had to tell Steve all of this. I set up a time to play him some of Sandy's interview. At this point, they had only ever texted. They hadn't talked on the phone or met in person. But Steve kept pushing off our meeting. Until one Saturday, he said he was ready. Jeanette, of course, was by his side. Hey, guys. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it today, but it's a pleasant surprise. Okay, are we all here? Let me clear on speaker. We might walk out to the car and see if we could hear better out in the car, because we can't really hear you guys very good. Hold on, I gotta find the keys. I'm not prepared. I'm sorry. <laughs> Linda, will you grab the dogs, please, for a second? Thank you, honey. I'm a cat person. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yeah. You're quieter, I promise you that. I wanted him to hear what we heard when we were with Sandy. Her side of the story. This Saturday in June, he was down to listen. We're going to let you hear a little bit of a tape. So I had him listen to her story about the tornado and how she started to spiral afterward. The girls were traumatized by the tornado because we were in the trailer when the tornado hit. And we had no way out. And I guess I, I snapped. I, I didn't know what to do. So, uh, what do you think about that? All right. All right. Steve and Jeanette don't own a computer. So we were talking on the phone, not on Zoom. They had connected the phone to the car's Bluetooth so they could hear us which made Steve feel even farther away. 
I couldn't see his face, but he seemed absent. Sandy says that she was suffering from PTSD after a tornado wrecked her house, and then um, she was barely functioning as a mother, and she's admitted that. She, she said that there was a lot of things she didn't remember, and she was traumatized, and she said she didn't feel like she could take care of kids. How seriously, Steve, do you take that Sandy claims to have PTSD after her trailer was blown away? Uh, he, he's still having a hard time um, thinking that she is not a terrible person. Steve seemed excited to get on the phone with us. And I'd known Steve to be a pretty soft-spoken dude. But by this point in the call, he barely said a word. And when he did, his emotions seemed muted. I was hopeful that hearing the tape would change something for him. I wanted him to hear Sandy describe the impact Franklin Floyd had on her, how he had taken over her life. He destroyed all my pictures, most of my pictures of my children, the girls. So he took everything, every memory. Everything. How does that make you feel? He might need a second. Okay. It's okay. Let's take a minute. It was a very different memory. You know, he he doesn't know about any of the time that he was with them. He's never heard about any of that. She doesn't remember handing you off to Mary, which is was surprising to me, and I wonder if that's surprising to you, Steve. It's not to me, though. Why not? I just think she's a manipulator, and I, I don't know. I, I want to. I'm the type of person that sees the good in anybody. But after watching how what he's went through, and and I just hope that she's just not trying to manipulate this as well. Well, and there wasn't a lot of resources. Just imagine if we had Doe Networker name us back in. See, FBI still wouldn't let us call you a missing person, but we did anyway with Doe Network because it's not regulated by the government. So I could do whatever we wanted, which was a blessing. For us. Mm-hmm. So it worked. I mean, it finally worked. It took about a high, uh, about 45 years, but it, it finally worked. There's no doubt Sandy would have benefited from the Doe Network. Think of all the volunteers who could have helped her find clues. By now, Jeanette and I were the only ones talking. Something was wrong with Steve. I recognize what was happening because I've done it myself. I think Steve had drunk too much to numb himself. Maybe it's the only way he could get on this call with us. There was a lot to take in. All this time, Steve assumed Sandy didn't want him. But she told us that she did. We played him the tape. I honestly thought we were leaving Steve with friends of his to come back and get him like in a week. But I remember giving him to Mary. I remember handing him to Mary and saying, Mommy will be back to get you. Just... Give mommy a chance to get where she's going and mommy will come back and get you. And kissing him. It was hard to tell how much of this sunk in. He didn't say a thing after we played him this stunning revelation. Sandy or none of them want to force you to do anything you don't want to do. But they're practically begging to have something to do with you. So does that, do you not feel loved and wanted? I do now. Because you had to hear it with your own ears, right? Yeah. Is there a part of that that changed for you? Or what, what did anyone say that changed that for you? 
He started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After about an hour on the phone with Steve, this felt like something. Hearing Sandy's voice yielded a small breakthrough. Steve admitted he wants to be wanted. In the weeks that followed, I tried calling Steve again, wanting to update him on the other things I'd learned. Sometimes he texted me back and returned my calls, but sometimes he didn't. I could tell this was hard on him. I think he was reluctant to confront this head-on, take on 50 years of reckoning all at once. I think Steve believed that Sandy had deliberately written him and Susie out of her life, that once they were gone, they were gone. But in talking to her other kids, I soon found out that she never forgot about the two she lost, even when she didn't always want to talk about it. As she entered her late 20s, Sandy's life began to fall into place. She went to a mental health group where she talked about losing Susie and Steve. She got married once more and then finally to Carson Willett, her husband of 30 years. 
he didn't meet my kids at first, but when he met my kids, we were living in an apartment and we didn't have much. We didn't have a TV. The first thing he did was the next day he came back and he had a TV for the kids. He said, no kids should be without a TV. She had three more children, two boys and one more girl. Dorothy, her youngest, told me that present-day Sandy might be unrecognizable to her younger self. She's a caregiver. That's all she is. She's just a caregiver. She will give you anything and, and everything that you... If she's got $5 in her pocket and you need three of it, she's going to give it to you. You know, she's always taking care of us kids. Dorothy only knows this Sandy. She never knew her mother after the tornado when she was inconsolable, when she could barely take care of herself let alone her children. But that doesn't mean Dorothy doesn't question some of her mom's choices. You know, I told my mom, I was like, you're stupid. I was like, why didn't you call your mom and dad? She said that her mom and dad didn't want anything to do with her because they thought that she was a whore. And my mom was never a whore. She drank a lot, but she, she was never a whore. It's not like she didn't look for them. She did. Uh, she was hitchhiking to go find them. It's not like she gave up. Dorothy said Sandy always lived with heartache. Two of her children were gone without a trace. Maybe missing, maybe dead. And it's the story her surviving five kids came to understand, too. Here's Amy again. She drives a school bus in rural Virginia and it has an infectious belly laugh. I remember at one time I saw a picture once of the three of us sitting on Santa Claus's lap. And I think I was two. I was really small. And then Allison was sitting on one leg and Susan was standing beside Allison, I think. Amy's tried to conjure memories of her big sister. She calls her Susan, but Amy was so young. I mean, I have pictures of her now. But that was the only picture I'd ever seen, and I try so hard to remember that. And I can't. It was just, that was it. In the past, Amy's been frustrated by the holes in her mom's memory, just like Steve. It's always been an ongoing thing, but when you try to talk to her about certain things when we were little, she would change the subject real quick. Just, like, get away from it. Or tell you that's grown folk business. Stay out of grown folk business. Sandy doesn't dispute this. When the kids were young, she didn't think they were old enough to understand. In fact, she said they wondered why Floyd didn't take them, as if Susie was on a permanent vacation or something. They never had a lot of money or anything when they were growing up. And they thought, I think, that she had a better life than they did. You know, like, they were kids. Like, they were missing out on something. But by the time Dorothy, the youngest, became an adult, she got more of the full story because Sandy's way of talking about the loss evolved over time. Dorothy knew about Susie and Steve, who were gone before she was born. She studied the pictures of Susie, trying to figure out the whole story. She knew that she had two older siblings that weren't around, but that was it. My mom didn't have any baby pictures of them, but um, I did know about Susie. I'm like, Mom, who's this? You know, I don't see her. And then she went into the long, you know, telling me what happened. And then she said that she also had a son, too. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, where is he at? I think I was like 
eight or nine years old when it happened. She explained everything to me. I don't think Steve's wrong for expressing some skepticism about his mom and why she doesn't remember. Even her daughters are a little skeptical of their own mom. Dorothy and Amy live close to Sandy and see her often. They know she feels ashamed. Here's Dorothy again. And yes, she regrets that she didn't do everything that she could. And and yes, she's putting a lot of the, the stuff on her, the blame on herself. And I'm like, Mom, you know, it's not just your fault. The way Dorothy sees it, there's a lot of blame to go around. She also points a finger at Mary, Steve's adoptive mom. You know, I just, I, I look at things different than everybody else does, I guess. You know, you had my brother the whole time, but yet you wouldn't give him back to my mom? But Sandy didn't have any contact with Mary and Bob. It's not like they knew she was looking for Steve. You know, I'm not just going to point the finger at them. I'm pointing the finger at, at Franklin, too. You know, and I'm pointing the finger at my mom. I don't just sit there and, and single out anybody. I can see where she's coming from. Each person played a little role at keeping Steve lost for 50 years. He grew up without knowing who his people were. But in this story, there's only one man that broke up this family. One kidnapper. One serial killer. I think he's the one that deserves all of the anger and blame. Sandy said she never gave up hope. I am friends on Facebook with seven Philip Stephen Brandenburgs. Because I always thought that one of them might be him. Maybe she'd see a little blonde boy who kind of looked the same and watch him for a second too long, wondering who he belonged to. Was he Philip Stephen Brandenburg? Or she'd get a glimpse of a little girl with curly hair and sapphire blue eyes at the shopping mall and feel a pull. Is that her? In the early 1980s, missing kids became a bigger deal in America. This is around the time the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was founded. There was this campaign, get the faces of missing kids on the backs of milk cartons. The idea was to get the word out. If there were faces on milk cartons, I would buy everything of milk that they had to see if it was my kids. And at one point, um, my parents told me that they knew where Susie was. Were they trying to make you feel better or? Oh no. Trying to make me feel worse. And then, in 2019, Steve found her. You know the story. He found her on Facebook, where she had been looking for him. I was crying so bad, I didn't even know. One, I didn't know how he found me when I couldn't find him. Because I thought I was doing everything, but obviously I wasn't. But that's neither here nor there. And I was so excited he was alive. And and at the time, he said he had a good life. It was emotional. She had to process all of this, that her child was alive, and that maybe he had a better life without her. Bittersweet, yes. I cry a lot anyway, but happy tears and sad tears, because I missed all those years. But happy tears that he was safe and he was happy. Or fairly happy. He said he wasn't super happy, but he was fairly happy. Steve, for his part, still isn't sure he wants to meet Sandy. I don't want to push him. It's, it's, at this point in time, it isn't what I want. It's what he wants and what he needs more than what I need. 
To Sandy, it was a miracle that Steve was alive and came back into her life. I think that's part of the reason she'd like to know him. She wasn't afforded that miracle with Susie. After she was taken at six, Sandy never saw her again. When I was talking to Sandy at her house in Virginia, her granddaughter Autumn was kind of moving room to room. At this point, she was nine months pregnant and ready to pop. Starting to think about the next generation of her family and the stories that would be passed down. It seemed like she was listening to our conversation or that she had something to ask. Turns out she did. Why was it Susie? It's the same question her aunts asked so many years ago. Why Susie? Why did Floyd run away with the oldest? Okay. Why did he choose her? Okay, I'll start at the bottom. He didn't choose Amy because he thought Amy was a little chubby. Amy was, Amy's always been, never been skinny a day in her life. Not a bad thing, but she was a cute little chubby baby. He did not like Amy because she was a hard-headed two, he called her a hard-headed two-year-old. He didn't like Allison. Allison had health problems. Susie, he said, was the perfect child, sent from God to him. Thought she was his. Yeah, that God gave her to him. That's why he took her. Hearing this felt like a real punch in the gut. How Sandy remembered exactly the way Floyd talked about her children. Susie suffered because Floyd believed she belonged to him. The rest were saved because of their apparent imperfections. It's this deranged thinking that would alter everyone's lives forever. Sandy would find Steve in 2019, but Susie stayed missing. Even though her mother had been real close to finding Susie, back on her 1975 hitchhiking trip. In fact, I had stopped in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's where he was with her. But I didn't know. You passed right by him? Yeah. Floyd spent the next 20 years traveling with her from state to state, flying under the radar. When did you realize he had a criminal record? Uh, maybe not until 10 years after he had disappeared. He was a fugitive who had been on the run since 1973, before he'd even met Sandy. He was evading charges for kidnapping. This kidnapping wasn't his first, and it wouldn't be his last. Next time on Hello, John Doe. Just the kidnapping was straightforward, like, um, a lot of kidnapping cases, but and then when you find out that he kidnapped the boy's mother, and you find out he killed somebody else, and he had the evidence, and yeah, it got convoluted then, for sure. People didn't talk about what happened in people's houses, so nobody would have thought anything different. So after the story came out, it was very um, eye-opening for all of us because none of us would have ever thought she lived the life she lived. Hello, John Doe is an original production by Revelations Entertainment in association with First and Last Productions. From Revelation, our executive producers are Morgan Freeman and James Younger. From First to Last, Lindsay Moreno is the executive producer. Our producing partner is Neon Hum Media. It was written and produced by Kate Mishkin. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. She is also Neon Hum Media's executive editor. Our executive producer is Shara Morris. Our development producer is Ian Lindsay. Our associate producer is Rufaro Faith Mazarura. 
Sound design and mixing by Scott Somerville. Theme and original music composed by Jesse Pearlstein. Additional music came from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Fendel Fulton is our fact checker. Our production manager is Samantha Allison. For My Heart Media, Dylan Fagan is our executive producer. Special thanks to Adelia Rubin at Neon Home and Carrie Lieberman and Will Pearson at iHeartMedia. I'm Todd Matthews. You can learn more about NamUs at NamUs.gov. The number for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Call Center is 1-800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-843-5678. The National Sexual Assault Hotline from the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is 1-800-656-4673. Okay, guys, this is the end of the show. If you didn't like it, don't do anything. But if you did like it, you make sure that you rate and review the show. It helps more people to find it and hear this wonderful story. Thanks again for listening. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.